I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, And refugees must not feel a lot of dignity these days being tossed around uh, in the conditions they're in. In 2016, Donald Trump won his party's nomination and then the presidency largely on a made-up issue of immigration. We were being invaded, he said. He didn't need to say by the brown-skinned other of which we must be afraid. He didn't need to be explicit. Dictators in the last hundred years or so have often relied on whipping up fear of the other, be it Jews or blacks or Muslims or gay people. Sadly, it works. What is the reality behind the unquestionably racist campaign against refugees? And how is it affecting all these people? We're going to quote from a letter from Stephanie Johansson of the New York Times, Uh, U.N. representative for women's refugee commissions. She says, at a time when the number of refugees worldwide is at a record high, this administration continues its course of isolation and cruelty by cutting back on both access to asylum protections and refugee support. For comparison, my own country, Germany, smaller in size than the state of Montana, has accepted 1.1 million refugees, while Uganda, a third the size of Texas, has accepted 1.3 million. The arguments by the administration about a lack of resources and safety concerns are unfounded. Resettlement to the United States often requires years-long and rigorous vetting. A 2017 study from the National Bureau of Economic Research found that refugees who entered the U.S. as adults from 2010 to 2014 paid on average 21000 more in taxes than they got in any kind of welfare payments. From Myanmar, where Rohingya fathers are forced to watch their daughters being raped by the military, to Iraq, where Yazidi girls are sold by ISIS for the price of a pack of cigarettes, the United States is abandoning those who need our protection most. Separating families, children in cages, we've all seen it, who may never be reconnected with their parents. Why is this happening? Of course, many good Americans are appalled by this policy. And there are many great organizations attacking the problem from various angles, from leaving water jugs in the desert to providing sanctuary to interfering at ICE centers to offering legal assistance. Of course, while all this is going on, it is necessary to look at the roots of the refugee crisis. Where are they coming from and why? What other countries, specifically in Europe, what are they doing about the crisis? And what does the crisis look like in Europe? There's a lot of refugees there. With us to shed light on these and other aspects of the problem is Tim Horgan, Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Tim, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks so much for having me. Let's first look at the World Affairs Council. I'm not sure, frankly, how well known it is. I know it precedes the current refugee crisis. Uh, Please tell us about the World Affairs Council, what its mission is, etc., 
Yeah, we like to say that the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is the best-kept secret in the state, although we're not too happy about that. Uh, we're definitely trying to figure out ways that we can expand our, our reach here. Um, but then the, you're right, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire has been around since 1954. We were founded as part of the Foreign Policy Association's efforts to educate people in, here in the U.S. about uh Cold War issues uh, with the idea that uh, if people know more about what is going on in the world, uh, create better linkages and relationships around the world, that we would become a more peaceful and prosperous world. Uh, Our mission here to this day is to promote the widest understanding of international issues for the people of New Hampshire. And we do that through a couple of different programs. We run speaker programs. We run documentary film series. We also have a international visitor exchange program through the U.S. Department of State, and we run a global high school trivia challenge uh, to help students uh, get engaged in international affairs and relations. You know, it's interesting. It does seem like this particular administration relies on ignorance, quite frankly, on not knowing. We don't want to know the realities, and decisions are made, policies are made, Out of that context, it's amazing to me. The amount of information that is out there at people's fingertips uh, is is quite amazing when it comes to international affairs. But if you look at the total time given by the three national Mm -hmm. news organizations, ABC News, NBC News, and, and CBS, those three stations are dedicating as much time to international affairs as any one of those stations would have dedicated to international news back in the 1960s. Um, wow. So the, the amount of, of focus on international news and, and understanding of what is going on around the world has definitely slipped over the, the past several decades and is something that we are working to combat. Wow, that's a big problem. <laughs> it, <laughs> You know, I, 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 it, it's interesting. I get to watch BBC News uh, to get international news, stuff that we never, ever see. But it's just so provincial. It's, it's really astounding. I, I, what's your sense of how that has happened and what the effects of not knowing about this stuff are on, on the United States and these humanitarian issues? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's been an ebb and flow in the U.S. as to... Uh, and around the world uh, to see how people are interested in what what goes on in the world. Of course, people around the world are very knowledgeable of what goes on here in the U.S., Yes, one of the largest, if not the most important countries in the world. So a lot of people are affected and understand that they're affected by the policies and the programs that uh, we do here in in our country. But, um, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. don't think about well, actually, what happens in South Sudan or what happens in Bangladesh or what happens in Russia is actually going to come back and affect us here in the homeland. Um, So I think that is one challenge that the uh, country does face is there is so much information out there. There's so many things going on both uh, domestically and internationally that people try and prioritize their time. uh, and, And I think a lot of people are exasperated with the information that they're getting about what's going on in the world, because as the news tends to do, uh, both, again, internationally and nationally, 
they focus on the negative and you know people just get exhausted hearing about another riot that uh has occurred somewhere around the world or uh you know another brutal dictator has uh suppressed his his people in this this terrible way or just you know everything that's going on in Syria um you know people i think get a little bit unfortunately exhausted by that and sort of pull back away from it um, because they feel that they don't need to know about it. But in reality, we do, as a nation, need to have a good understanding of what's going on in the world around us. We need to have a good understanding of how our policies, how our decisions are affecting different countries so that we can be better informed, particularly when we go to the the ballot box. Uh, the the mm. World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. So we don't care. You know, we're not in the business of telling you who to vote for, right. but we want to make sure that you have the information, that uh, accurate expert information that you can take and make your own decisions and and make better decisions at the the uh, on voting day. You know, there's that old saying from uh, news editors, if it bleeds, it leads. And that seems to be uh, largely the case. But as uh, there's so much going on around the world, I mean, we uh, those three networks, what, what do they focus on Africa? Not much, but there's a lot happening in Africa between China and the U.S. And uh, we just, it's maybe too complicated. I don't know. But uh, there's a lot going on that they just don't cover. And speaking of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, there was an amazing film you presented uh, called Human Flow. It was made by the internationally renowned artist Ai Weiwei, I hope I pronounced that right, which is part of a series you put on called Finding Refuge. Now, all Americans are vaguely familiar with the concept of the a refugee immigration crisis. But but this film gives a powerful, really powerful visual expression of to this massive, massive human migration. It it it, it you can't help but understand it better after seeing uh, this film, which and you have other movies as well about finding refuge. But but this documentary elucidates both the staggering scale of the refugee crisis and its profoundly personal impact. I wonder if you could just take a few minutes and tell listeners about the film, what it shows, what it says about the crises, and what it says about the human spirit. There's a lot to ask, I know. Yeah, no, that's okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, I definitely agree that it is an amazing film, um, just visually beautiful, uh, as well as uh, heartbreaking yet inspiring at the same time. Uh, it really takes a look at the global issue of refugees, uh, what they're experiencing, uh, there are over 65 million refugees and many more millions internally displaced people, and those numbers continue to grow. Uh, it is really a global problem that almost uh, no country can it cannot be affected by, uh, no matter how many borders or, or uh, ways in which people try to keep uh, these refugees out. Uh, they're, they are in such dire straits that that they're going to do whatever it takes to get to a place where they can be uh, more safe and secure and have, have a more stable life than what they're experiencing back home. Obviously, nobody ever wants to have to leave their home uh, and, and walk thousands of miles to um, get to a place where they can feel a little bit safer. But it's really interesting that some of the numbers that we're seeing, it is the greatest global displacement of people since World War II um, mm. to just 
think about that in terms of real numbers of, of people uh, is, is kind of staggering. So the, the film itself uh, visits countries all over the world, 23 of them in, in total, including places like Germany, Hungary, Afghanistan, Bangladesh. Uh, they are really looking at the struggles of these people, uh, that these people are, again, in such dire straits that they have to move, they have to get away from whatever the cause of, of their displacement is, whether it's um, uh, poverty, conflict and war, um, uh, global climate change, things like that, yeah. that are really the driver behind these things. Um, it shows a lot of the struggles that they encounter when they migrate and when they are resettled. So in France, they show uh, the, the French government coming in and uh, destroying this uh, giant impromptu ad hoc refugee camp uh, of, of people who, who had nowhere else to go uh, called the Calais camp. And uh, the, the French government just sort of said, well, this is an illegal encampment and we're getting rid of it, so uh, good luck to y'all. Um, it is really amazing to see some of the conditions that these people endure. Um, you know, you see people in uh, different countries who are who are encamped uh, at a train station, an abandoned train station, and people are uh, you know living in boxcars that that have been abandoned, and it's just pouring rain, and nothing's getting dry, and you hear about all of these sicknesses. Um, some of the most powerful images from the from the movie itself are of people in boats coming across the Mediterranean. They have one picture where, or, or one scene where there's a, a boat that is filled to capacity, probably more than more than capacity. I think yeah. uh, there were. I think they ended up counting around 750 people packed into this tiny boat that's just sort of bobbing in the waves, um, and they have to pull people off of this this boat. So you know it's. It really brings home a lot of people when they think about refugees. They think about the numbers. They think about uh, you know the issues that are driving these. But not a lot of people, I think, really think about the people and the individuals and the lives that they are leaving behind and the lives that they're trying to create for themselves and their family. Um, so one of the things that really impresses me from this film is the difficulties of migration, the difficulties that people undertake in order to get to this, the, these, these places that they think are going to be better for them, and what that means for how bad things must be back at home. Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, the things that they go through, as you described, that they're pouring rain, people, many people, just out in the open, little kids, it's just... You know, until you actually see it, it's it's really quite astounding. And sixty-five million—that's just—I mean, it, it's hard to even get a picture of, of of what that must look like. For those who may have just tuned in, I'm Bert Cohen. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Tim Horgan, Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We're talking about the realities of of the worldwide refugee crisis. It, so they have to, they're leaving from, in Europe anyway, which this film focuses on, they're leaving from Syria and the Middle East, trying to cross the Mediterranean. Uh, there's all kinds of barbed wire in various different countries. And the countries 
changed their policies somewhat uh, arbitrarily, it seems. that Sometimes they've been able to pass through uh, uh, countries. And maybe you can describe some of those. Like they have to go through uh, Greece and Hungary, and I'm not sure what other countries along the way. But, you know, tell us about the different approaches, if you would, taken by those nations that are on the way to their goal of, well, largely Germany, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I I think in the in the film, one of the things that really stands out is uh, when they are focused on Europe, the the people who are trying to get from one country to the next, and so many of them land in Greece, many of them land in Italy, and they are trying to get to these these countries that have become more open, such as Germany. So Germany is sort of the shining example in Europe of how this how this response uh, should be. So there is actually a rule within the European Union that says migrants must first apply for asylum in the country that they first arrived to. So Greece was getting inundated with people. They didn't have the the structure, the infrastructure to to handle all this. Um, And Germany said, all right, listen, this is obviously a huge crisis. Uh, let's we as a country are going to put aside that rule that they have to apply where they first touch ground. And in 2015 alone, they welcomed over 900,000 uh, migrants and refugees to their country, um, saying that this is this is something that we really need to to take on. Now, other countries were not quite as welcoming. Uh, you mentioned Hungary; they built razor wire fences. Uh, to close their borders. Austria deployed armed forces to effectively seal off uh, migrant routes. Um, and even here in the in the U.S., we've created the Remain in Mexico program, where asylum seekers must wait in Mexico for their U.S. court dates. And there have been national, massive deployments of National Guard to both the U.S. and Mexico borders, trying to stem the, the uh, flow of migrants coming up from, from Central America. Um, other other examples, Malta, Spain, and France have all closed ports on the Mediterranean to try and keep migrants out. But the big issue is is more about what is not happening. So people who are fleeing uh, due to conflict and extreme poverty, there are reasons why these people are coming. And closing borders and trying to prevent people from coming in is not going to fix the problem. Uh, governments that want to stem the flow of migrants and refugees really should be looking more at what the drivers are of these mi- um, migration movements uh, and and how we can address them in, in a positive way to make those countries more safe, put an end to some of these conflicts that are really showing people that they, they have to get out, they have to go somewhere else. Um, and it, it's been shown... Uh, by various studies around that hardening borders as Austria and Hungary in particular have done are not an effective method. They just make things more dangerous for the migrants. Mm. These people are going to try and come anyway, uh, whether or not there's a fence in their way and they cut their way through it or they go to more dangerous routes that, um, you know, end up with them starving or, or dying of dehydration on their on their efforts to get somewhere safer. Um, and again, that really 
the chances people are willing to take in order to try and get away from the uh, the place with it they're living right now really just drives home the point to me that that the the situation at home has to be so dire that they're willing to risk their life to try and get somewhere else because they figure they're just you know they they have no other choice looking at it from the point of view perhaps of of people from uh, Austria Hungary uh different areas they don't have an empire anymore they used to but i can imagine people thinking well what what is my responsibility here they they didn't cause the uh, the problems in those uh, the countries from which they're fleeing i mean the us quite frankly uh, has caused a lot of the problems. I mean, if you look at the uh, the brutal regimes in Central America, with you know, with the uh, uh, nods and the winks to the drug gangs and and the vicious uh, repression there, yeah, we have a responsibility. But what about in Europe? I mean, Germany doesn't have uh, an empire anymore. What what is why is it in their interest to to try to do something about this? And what about well, a those countries and b the United Nations? Yeah, I mean, we'll, I guess we'll start with the, the United Nations. Obviously, uh, you have the United Nations uh, Council on Human Rights, and you also have um, the, the migration services that they run. Uh, yeah, it is w- within the, the scope of the UN to really be looking at uh, how do we promote peace and security throughout the world, uh, regardless of who started what and, and what the causes are, they're really looking to find solutions. And, uh, you know, refugee resettlement is a very uh, arduous process. Uh, the average stay of a refugee in a refugee camp is over seven years, I believe it is at this Whoa. point. Oh, my. And so you have these people who, again, have, have made an arduous trip. They are leaving their their homes, sure. they're leaving the majority mm-hmm. of their possessions behind. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be leaving family members behind as well. Um, and so the UN really is looking at particularly refugees uh, to uh, as a humanitarian response, uh, something that needs to be undertaken because these people are at risk for their lives, um, whether it's because of political persecution, religious persecution, um, whatever the case may be, they are uh, they have a legitimate fear for their life if they stay where they are. Um, and I would think that... You know, you, well, I was just going to ask, I, I would think that, you know, aside from just uh, being nice people, being humanitarian, frankly, it's in the interest of these countries to slow down the uh, uh, need for people to to run and be refugees. It's it's in their you know interest to do so. But uh, it, go ahead. Yeah, I mean certainly the the more we and and the more we can keep people where they are, yeah. uh, the better for everyone. Because yeah. again, these these people don't want to leave. Um, they're they are forced to leave. So anything that can be done um, to to keep people where they're at. Um, by improving uh, conditions on the ground, not by trying to just say, "Oh, well, you can't come here anymore," right? But by improving conditions on the ground. Um, the other thing, in terms of of Europe and and why this may be something, you know, a place like Germany is being very accepting of immigrants is, if you look at it, um, 
overall, whether it's legal or illegal immigration, mm -hmm. uh, it is a net benefit to to societies based on the research that that has been done on this. Um, you know, you look at crime rates amongst immigrant groups again, whether legal or illegal, um, taking out uh, whether or not crossing the border is a crime in, a, in and of itself. Crime rates amongst those groups are are much lower than the average American, mm. uh, native-born American. Uh, you look at uh, entrepreneurship and, and rates of business startups that occur within immigrant communities, it is a net benefit. And um, yes, there are some people who may, you know, there are always winners and losers with whatever um, whatever you do mm -hmm. uh, and whatever you allow to happen within your country. But it's incumbent on the government to help mitigate the the losses that that you may see from uh, whether it's migration or from climate change or or whatever the case may be. And so I think it is in the best interest of each and every country to identify that this is a a serious problem and be a problem that if approached properly, can be a net benefit to everyone involved. Yeah, it'd be nice if they could uh, see that. And, you know, turning to uh, the United States, when I was growing up, it was commonly accepted that the words on the Statue of Liberty were meaningful. You know, that poem, uh, Emma Lazarus. How different or unique is the Trump administration's attitude toward welcoming refugees? I don't know how much of an aberration it is. I mean, there's, there's always been sort of a simmering undercurrent of, you know, against Irish refugees or Italian refugees or, or, or this group or another. But in general, I mean, the, the presidential administrations, I don't know. Have, have, how much of an aberration uh, is this? I mean, I'm certainly no uh, presidential historian, so I can't... Sure. Uh, give you anything more than my my own opinion on on what I see but it's it's interesting because um, from what I've read from what I've seen particularly in terms of uh, migration from Mexico mm -hmm. it it really does ebb and flow uh, there are times in which people are very accepting of uh, of migrants and actually in the 1950s there was a, a program called the Broceros program which allowed people from Mexico to come up and work fields, work at farms, uh, and then go back home without a problem. And that program was uh, funded when the, when the economy was good and demonized when the economy was bad. And, you know, you, you continue to see this, this migration regardless of where that program was because people were just so used to being able to come across the border, work for a couple months in the farms, and then go back home. Mm -hmm. And the challenge that we've really seen in terms of illegal immigration and the growing numbers of people who, who are here uh, is when you strengthen those borders, people decide, well, I can't get back home, so I guess I'm staying here. Um, and I think, you know, you, you do see uh, a lot of sort of backlash in the news about um, about migration 
and about uh, the other coming here and mm-hmm. taking jobs and mm-hmm. terrorists infiltrating refugee uh, camps and uh, dangerous people looking to take advantage of our our open border system, uh, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But you know, you really, if you look at the numbers, uh, I think it's a little bit of this squeaky wheel getting the grease because. Yeah. In survey after survey, people, Americans in particular, are saying that, um, according to a Chapman University poll in 2018, 70% of Americans viewed immigrants as a net positive to, the, to their communities. Oh, interesting. Uh, and another 70% of Americans really do welcome people with valid asylum claims. Um, so I do think that while you hear a lot of negativity around uh, immigration and uh, people coming over here, it really is not the majority. It's just a, a loud group of people <laughs> who have gotten their, their voices out there. Ooh, I hate when that happens, but it happens fairly often, unfortunately. <laughs> Trump focuses, yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, Trump thrives on fear of the other. And he seems to really relish cruelty somehow, which is just bizarre. But that's another story. He focuses his anti-immigration policies on the brown-skinned people at America's southern border. He's made it very, very difficult for them to even apply for asylum. I've gotten a sense that similarly racially-based sentiments are not absent from Europe. And I, with exa- I mean, Brexit... You know, a lot of that seemed to be, again, below the surface, kind of stop the others, the brown-skinned immigrants, from coming in here. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about these and how they're playing out in, in Europe, which is run by yeah, I mean, white I think, people. Go ahead. Yeah, I think uh, if you look at it, there's there's definitely some similar trends. Um, Chapman House put out a survey last year and found that about 55% of Europeans wanted to put an end to Muslim immigration. And really what that means is Middle Eastern Muslims, because, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're okay with certain people from certain countries who may be Muslim, but uh, not, the, not the scary Muslims. Um, so to dive a little deeper into that, Austria, 65% of people uh, said that they wanted to put an end to Muslim immigration. Poland, it was 71%. Uh, Hungary, 64%. So you see a lot of these wow. similar countries coming up uh, in, the, in the same conversations. Um, but even some of the, uh, the countries that you wouldn't expect. So according to a YouGov poll in 2018, mm. 72% of Germans uh, said that they were opposed to accepting more migrants. And you know, you go down and you've, you see Denmark, Finland, Sweden, the UK, all above 50%. Um, so, you know, this is something that, that people are concerned about and people are, uh, you know, interested in. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see the, the governments in Hungary, Austria, Italy, and Poland talking about creating, and this is their term, an axis of anti-immigrant governments. <laughs> within the EU, and they want to see tighter restrictions on uh, migrants coming to, to Europe. And the biggest example of this really is the deal that the EU struck with Turkey. So, uh, you know, there were a lot of migrants coming from uh, 
Middle East, North Africa, landing in Greece, landing in Italy, and just flooding the system. And uh, then the Syrian war came around, Mm -hmm. civil war, and you see, you know, a mass influx of of Syrian refugees. And so what the EU struck with the uh, Turkish government in 2015 was a program that basically said the EU will give Turkey 6.5 billion euros to house all of these Syrian refugees and that they will, you know, switch one for one. Anyone who lands in the EU as a Syrian refugee will be sent to Turkey and one refugee who's been housed in Turkey that is approved for refugee resettlement in the EU will be able to um, come to uh, come to Europe at that point. So what you've actually seen with this program is a Turkey is now using it to kind of keep Europe hostage a little bit, yeah. um, saying that if you don't do if you don't satisfy the terms that we are going to outlay to you, we're going to open up our borders and let all of these people come and and you know all of these refugees come and flood your system. And so it's really interesting to see the politics around this and how different countries are trying to gain advantage and how countries are trying to you know uh, sort of offload the the work to other people. Hmm. Uh, Turkey, an interesting place. Uh, For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about worldwide refugee crisis and what can be done. Our guest today is Tim Horgan, Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. And Turkey, of course, uh, former Ottoman Empire, has been a, a big player, unfortunately. They have kind of a reputation when it comes to Armenia during the First World War. And there's a lot of reasonable fear about uh, this guy Erdogan and what Trump has just done. Uh, Speaking of Turkey, uh, he's suddenly turned his back on the Kurdish people who have they were left out of the Versailles uh, uh, Treaty. Uh, They didn't get a nation with borders. Uh, And it's unfortunate that they didn't because they're between Turkey and Syria. But they were key to destroying ISIS, and yet Trump is turning his back on the, on the Kurdish people, many of whom are Christians. I wonder if you could tell us about the Kurdish people and perhaps speculate on why Trump is abandoning them. I mean, the obvious thing is to get attention off impeachment, but whoa, my goodness, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so the Kurdish people are a distinct ethnic group. Uh, You see many of them in Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Um, They, at various points in times in each each country, have been looking for autonomy, uh, if not outright statehood. Um, So the northern part of Iraq, you may uh, remember during the Iraq War, uh, was pretty actually stable because uh, the Kurdish people up there had had a pretty good control of things. Some Um, autonomy, yeah. The interesting thing is in Turkey, um, the Kurds have been looking for uh, for autonomy, 
and Erdogan has not been a fan of that. Sure. Um, Put it mildly. Understandably so, wants to keep the, the territorial integrity of his country together. Um, there have been accusations by the Turkish government that uh, the Kurds have uh, engaged in terrorist activities against the Turkish uh, country. Um, but, as you said, in Syria, they have been our best partner. So you have these people defense forces uh, mm -hmm. working within the Syrian democratic forces, which have been a vital ally for the U.S. in the fight against ISIS, uh, in, in rolling back the caliphate. Um, they uh, have also been fighting themselves, the regime of uh, Assad in, in Syria. Um, they're generally located in the northern part, the northeastern part in particular of Syria, um, and they're still holding out hope that they can create a, a zone or, uh, you know, still overthrow the, the government of Assad to create a more democratic, secular Syrian state. Um, so these militias have been designated by terrorist groups from t by Turkey uh, in that country, and um, that is sort of a big issue, a big uh, touchstone between the U.S. and and Turkey. Turkey has been very upset that the U.S. has worked with these people, um, basically saying that we're supporting terrorists who are going to come and try and overthrow their country next. Um, they've worked with the U.S. and U.S. military trainers and advisors, and they've been the majority of the ground forces that have been fighting against right. ISIS. So they again very have effective. been extremely vital in in doing this program. Uh, in terms of, you know, President Trump's reasoning for it, I certainly am not a, an expert in the president's thinking, <laughs> um, but what I have read have indicated that this, the decision has come after a phone call with yeah. uh, President Erdogan. Um, again, Turkey views them as a security threat and has wanted to create a uh, safety zone uh, that extends out 20 miles from the, the Turkish border. Um, hmm. So it sounds like that is where uh, President Trump's uh, thinking is, is that Turkey wants to do this. They're going to do it anyway. We don't want to be involved. Hmm. It also appears to be part of a wider effort to disentangle the U.S. from these long protracted wars. Hmm. Um, it's n not clear at this point if this signals a wider pullout from Syria, um, or are we only pulling out from these regions? That hasn't been uh, cleared up by the administration. Uh, and President Trump seems to believe that ISIS has been completely defeated by destroying their caliphate, uh, but that's certainly up for debate, uh, with a lot of reports coming out that uh, they are regrouping their forces and have started committing uh, assassinations and bombings in, in different cities. And then finally, it seems to be hinging on one of his favorite complaints about the international sector, and that's that the U.S. is being taken advantage of, that, you know, the U.S. put in more effort uh, than anyone else, that we've given so much money to the Kurds, uh, that, you know, we are, uh, that Europe is not taking on its fair share and should be taking their uh, mm -hmm. the, the 2,000 or so uh, international fighters who have come from Europe to 
uh, fight for ISIS. So it really seems to be one of those things that he's, you know, he's been talking about it for, for many many months, if not mm-hmm. years, of, mm-hmm. of getting out of Syria. It's why part of the reason why General Mattis uh, resigned mm-hmm. when Trump abruptly, um, you know, said that we're, we're pulling everybody out, and that was that. Uh, so it it seems to be part of this wider strategy, uh, although it mm. does appear to be very knee-jerk and uh, that, that not a lot of uh, thought or discussion went into it. <laughs> Yeah, sounds sounds like Trump. Not a lot of thought or discussion going into it. And the Kurds, you know, we're talking about refugees. I have no idea how many there are. And they must be scared beyond belief, given the uh, ferocity with which uh, Turkey in the past has, has unleashed, frankly, you know, mass slaughter. I know that was a long time ago against the Armenians. But how many are there? And what does this portend for you know, more refugees here. Yeah, I mean, certainly what Turkey has been signaling themselves is that uh, they are looking to create a safe zone inside of Syria that they will be able to resettle 2 million of the 3.5 million Syrian refugees that they are currently uh, guarding. Um, So they have not necessarily said that they are going to go after the Kurds. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, President Trump, in one of his many tweets about the this, said that he will absolutely obliterate the, economy. Uh, the Turkish economy if they cross some line that he did mm-hmm. not uh, expound upon. Yeah. But you know, it it on the on the surface, it it does seem like uh, if everything goes as people says says it will, um, which we all know does not usually happen, particularly when it comes to, <laughs> to war and conflict, True. but uh, that that the Kurds are not the, the target at this point. Now, down the line, who's to say? Hmm. How many Kurds are there, anyway? I have no idea. Any guess? Uh, yeah, that, I don't know exactly the numbers, sure. but it, uh, you know, certainly is... Uh, not an insignificant number of people who, when you uh, count up all of the the three regions of uh, northern Iraq, um, northern Syria, and southern Turkey. It really is a nation without borders, unfortunately. Now, the World Affairs Council is also sponsoring a tour by Ambassador Nicholas Burns, uh, tell us about that. Who is he, and and what will he be talking about? Uh, how how does it relate to uh, the World Affairs Council's mission? Sure. So the so Nicholas Burns is going to be our speaker at our global uh, fall forum on Wednesday, December eighteenth at six p.m. It's uh, hosted at Southern New Hampshire University, and he is a former ambassador, uh, currently the. Roy and Barbara Goodman Family Professor of the Practice of Diplomacy and International Relations at the Harvard Kennedy School. Say that six times fast. Um, he uh, served in the U.S. government as a career for Foreign Service Officer, uh, Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs from 2005 to 2008. Uh, he was also the third-ranking official at that time. Uh, he was a U.S. ambassador to NATO from 2001 to 2005. Mm. He was ambassador to Greece from
from 97 to 2001, and he worked uh, at various other positions throughout the uh, administrations of President Clinton, uh, President Bush, uh, both H.W. and W. Um, Got some credit. So, yeah, a little. He he kind of knows what he's talking about, but he'll be looking at the state of U.S. foreign affairs and where it's headed. Uh, it's going to be really a, a great discussion to learn about the different things going on around the world, how the U.S. is responding to them, and um, you know we're really excited to have him. Well, it'd be good to to hear from him, and and he has uh, he's not keeping quiet. He wrote a piece in the New York Times about Trump, quote telling American diplomats at the United States mission to the U.N. that whoever in the administration gave information to the anonymous whistleblower was close to a spy. Mr. Trump's statement, again, this is from Burns, uh, was at odds with the obligation of every federal employee to tell the truth and adhere to the law. End of quote from uh, Nicholas Burns. In what way does this specifically concern the World Affairs Council? Well, as I mentioned before, we are a nonpartisan organization, so uh, we don't take sides on on the political issues. Um, sure. But how, uh, having said that, you know certainly, um, you know the uh, rhetoric coming from the administration, um, sort of threatening uh, whistleblowers, is is in my view not in line with the uh, the values of of the country. Um, saying that we used to deal with spies in a different way and it was better back then. Not not exactly what uh, we're looking for in, in our leadership. Um, but, you know, we, we definitely want to, to be supportive of the uh, U.S. Department of State. Uh, we think yes. that their work is, is great. Um, we run an international visitor program through them and we just had a, a group of educators from the Philippines meeting with students at Bishop Brady in Concord to talk about media literacy and, and how we can better promote that. Um, so, you know, the work of the U.S. Department of State is, is quite amazing. And, um, you know, the, the people who are working in our intelligence services as well seemingly do a, a wonderful job there. So, um, you know, just making sure that, that these people are respected, are supported, is uh, something that the, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire could get behind. I, I imagine. And there's been, I remember uh, President Nixon, I wish I didn't have such a clear memory of him, but he had <laughs> Kissinger, you know, overriding Bill Rogers was Secretary of State, and Rogers basically had nothing to do. The State Department was kind of left out of foreign policy, and the State Department is very important, as you say. And and Nicholas Burns, who's going on tour uh, for the World Affairs Council, also wrote, quote, No modern president has been dismissive and even uh, contemptuous of the State Department as Mr. Trump. He clearly does not understand or value the department. Democrats and Republicans in Congress, this is bipartisan, Democrats and Republicans in Congress must act to protect the State Department and the Foreign Service from Mr. Trump's overt attacks and implicit disregard, end of quote from uh, Nicholas Burns. Might this deviation from the foreign policy norm be subject to the impeachment inquiry? I know this is a little out of your uh, uh, realm, but just an opinion on it. I mean, it seems to me. Well, go ahead. Your opinion on that. Yeah. So I mean, I I don't 
uh, I can't really say whether or not there is uh, uh, any legal standing behind that. Um, but, you know, the sidelining of diplomats, the sidelining of the State Department is, uh, you know, it, it is an executive branch organization, so certainly the president can can choose to uh, raise it up or, or tear it down. Um, obviously, we are in support of, of supporting the, the State Department, uh, but it is something that that is more concerning, um, particularly if you look at the way in which uh, the department was handled under uh, Secretary Tillerson. Um, mm. A lot of the funds that were dedicated by the Congress uh, were not leveraged or used in the way uh, that they they necessarily were in, originally intended for. A lot of uh, high-level appointments were left unfilled, yes. and still to this day we have many ambassadorships who who are not filled. Um, many of the ambassadors, uh, another sort of norm that this administration has broken with is uh, usually around, um, only around 20 to 30 percent of ambassadors have been political appointees. Now it's sitting closer to 30, 40 percent. Um, so, you know, there are some, some definitely concerning things about the way in which the State Department has been handled in order to look towards uh, effectively uh, advocating our diplomacy abroad. Mm. Um, one of the things, I think one of the, the greatest quotes that, that we have had from this administration was during um, Secretary of Defense General Mattis's, uh confirmation hearing when he said, listen, if you're not going to fund the State Department properly, if the State Department is not going to do its job and, and function in the way it should, you're going to need to buy me more bullets. Yeah. Um, because the State Department does so many wonderful programs that help to prevent conflict, help to build relationships around the world, to cut off uh, you know, these trigger points before they even happen um, so that we can... Uh, so that we don't have to put boots on the ground and we don't have to put American lives in danger. Wow, diplomacy, not war. What a concept. How bizarre. (laughs) And, you know, in 1968, back to uh, Richard Nixon, the candidate privately intervened in foreign policy, maneuvering in secret the government of South Vietnam into rejecting President Johnson's peace plan, thus ensuring thousands of needless deaths and more destruction of Vietnam. Yet here's the president's ally, Rudy Giuliani, going off on his own, I mean, completely without any, you know, uh, accountability to the State Department, is doing essentially the same thing. Are there not laws against such actions? So the one thing that I would sort of say is is the difference here is that under uh, Nixon, that was... Uh, working against the uh, the stated goals of of the current administration, whereas Mr. Giuliani has uh, been working yeah. supposedly at the behest of the government. Um, so there's one difference uh, there. Yeah. Uh, but some of the things that you can really look to in terms of Mr. Giuliani uh, in his potential exposure would be: Did he violate the Logan Act of 1799? Uh, this is a really seldom used uh, law that basically says private citizens cannot be 
doing diplomacy work for the U.S. government. Um, it's only been used, I think, two or three times in the early 1800s, and all charges were dismissed. But it's something to think about, um, because we obviously want our diplomacy done by officials of the U.S. government. This is official work that people uh, you know, are doing, and it's important work. So we don't want to be sending conflicting signals uh, from two, two different governments. And this is something that actually the uh, current administration had accused uh, former Secretary John Kerry of uh, violating the Logan Act when uh. he was working with the uh, Iran government to try and save the uh, Iran uh-huh. nuclear deal after oh, that's a good uh, President point. Trump had uh, taken power. So that's mm. one thing to look at. Uh. Um, the other thing is, uh, if he wasn't working as a as an official spokesman of the U.S. government, which if he was, that sort of brings into the questions of, uh, you know, why wasn't he properly vetted and and put through uh, some sort of Senate confirmation hearing? But if he wasn't working as an official spokesperson of the U.S. government, was he then working for the campaign? Mm. And the issue that could come up there is if he's working for the campaign, but working in close relation, as it appears in the uh, the complaint, the whistleblower complaint, and and other information that has come out, working closely with the State Department, particularly Secre- Secretary Pompeo, is this a violation of campaign mm. uh, finance laws and keeping? Uh, government work, government and campaign work, campaign. Hmm. Um, so that's something else that you know may become an issue for uh, Mr. Giuliani down the road. Uh, finally, and I think from what I've been reading, most likely uh, he could be subject to pr- professional standards and ethics rules from the Bar Association of New York. Now, certainly this isn't legal proceedings, but um, something that would be. Uh, a big deal. Uh, if he's found to have made false public safe statements in the service of his client, uh, that can lead to issues with his atten- attorney standing uh, up to a seven-year disbarment. I guess in New York, they do not have lifetime disbarment. So uh, those are just some of the things that, that may come out of this. Um, but again, we'll we'll see what happens. Don't have all the facts yet. No. Um, so unclear as to where this uh, this goes. Well, certainly uh, there has been no secret that Trump, you know, admires uh, dictatorships, really, just people acting on their own. He doesn't seem to have an understanding that we are a nation of laws. It certainly, from my opinion, looks like he doesn't care about any laws. And, you know, I may be naive, but I still believe there are more good, caring anti-racist, conscientious Americans than racists and warmongers. I'd like to ask if, from your vantage point, from your vantage point, if do you sense a revulsion at our policy toward refugees? Is, is, is that revulsion growing, do you think? Is that a significant factor? Does, what, what, you know, what does that say about, you know, the policy uh, of uh, you know turning our backs on refugees and not doing anything about it, do, do you sense a, an improvement in it? Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree that racists are a minority here in the country. 
Um, but like I said earlier, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, so it's, it is an issue that everyone should be concerned about. But overall, I think that people are generally more accepting uh, than our news headlines would, would lead one to believe. Uh, so we've had a lot of our international visitors come through the State Department program to New Hampshire who have said that they're scared to come to the U.S. for fear of how they would be treated based yeah, on what yeah. the news has, has taught them in their own countries. Um, but when they, when they come here and they meet people and they, they leave, they have the strong sense that the people of the U.S. are warm and welcoming people. So that, I think, shows that that a lot of people, because these visitors meet with hundreds and hundreds of, of people while they're here, whether it's in professional meetings, uh, during a home hospitality dinner in, in a local person's home, or even just on the street. Um, and, and the stories people tell of, oh, yeah, this random person was just so nice and, yeah. and welcoming. Um, I think it really shows that, that overwhelmingly people in the U.S. are open to the idea of of immigrants and refugees. I was going to ask, I mean, that film, that really powerful film that, that sparked my interest in doing this interview, it, the film asked the question, will our global society emerge from fear, isolation, and self-interest and choose a path of openness, freedom, and respect for humanity? And which leads me to ask, what what is the role of the World Affairs Council what can citizens do? Are there initiatives being taken in Congress that people can get behind? How can people uh, participate in uh, some of the work of the World Affairs Council and, you know, carrying forth this, uh, this idea and this value? Yeah, so again, the, the World Affairs Council is looking to educate people about all of these issues that we've talked about here today, as, as well as many more that are going on around the world. You know, we believe that the more people understand different cultures, the more people can interact with people from around the world, better our world will be, the more peaceful our yes. world will be. We have uh, a Foreign Policy Association fellow coming to speak about China's Belt and Road Initiative, yeah, about how uh, China is using that as, as a soft diplomacy power to sort of coerce their no. neighbors into doing what they want. Um, we also, as I mentioned uh run the Academic World Quest, so if you have any students uh, who, who would like to be involved in that, and I know uh, there are many organizations throughout the country that, that run this program um, and send teams to the national comp competition down in D.C., and in my personal opinion, the most fun and interesting way to get involved with our programs is to host an international visitor group yeah. for an informal dinner uh, in your home. It's, it's yeah. a lot of fun. You get to talk to up-and-coming leaders from around the world about what's going on in their country, what's going on in our country, and it's just an amazing experience. It certainly is. There, there must be a website. People are you know, listening across the country. What website can you point people to? So you can find out more information about the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire at www.wacnh.org. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, fascinating. Uh, good to, to know about this stuff and that there are op better options out there. There really are. Tim Horgan, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. He saw a war was raging, had to escape it. She told the youths get ready, they're gonna make it. Run for your life, she tells them, the wars are breaking. 